Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the GovTech Advisors podcast. Uh, as always, this is Andrew, uh, and we've got Jordan Abramson with us. And we've got a very special guest, Paul Comfort, with us. Uh, and Paul, before I let you introduce yourself, uh, I, I would ask that you let me indulge myself a little bit and embarrass myself. Um, so a lot of people that listen to this podcast and that know me know I have an extensive experience in the pupil transportation space and uh, in the school bus space or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so in my transit experience, it's very focused on the yellow school bus. Uh, and I've done a lot of work there. Um, and APTA was uh, a, a show that we just went to not that long ago in Orlando. And uh, I saw a post from you on LinkedIn. And I was like, oh, this guy Paul's going to be at APTA. I should probably go talk to him. Oh, he works for Trapeze. I know Trapeze, right? Um, and I didn't really connect all the things together. And uh, so I went to go try to find you. And uh, somebody said, I, I was like, oh, I'm trying to find Paul Comfort. They're like, oh, you're going to talk to Paul? I was like, yeah. And they were like, oh. And I was like, why? And they were like, Paul's kind of a big deal. And I was like, he is? And so I just started Googling and I looked into it. And then I saw your podcast and your experience in the books that you've written and um, kind of what you were doing uh, as an SVP and uh, chief customer officer at Trapeze and TripSpark and Vontis. And um, then I was like, oh, I, uh, I totally whiffed it on this. And so when I went to go find you, you were actually recording one of your podcasts, uh, Transit Unplugged, uh, and you had Dart and SEPTA and the women leaders there. And I was like, wow, this guy is kind of a big deal. So by the time I actually could track you down, uh, I was a little bit fangirling on the inside. And, uh, and so I felt like when we did meet, um, I just didn't know what to say. And uh, I walked away kind of dejected. And then you were super gracious after the conference, you reached back out to me and said, hey, it was nice to meet you. And I saw that you did a podcast and we started talking and um, I, felt, uh, I felt much better about it. So one, um, thank you for taking time um, for our little podcast here. And two, thank you for the work that you're doing uh, in the space because it's, it's incredibly important um, and I'm probably haven't done it any justice. So Paul, can you, for everybody that's on this podcast uh, and especially for us, can you give us a little bit of background about who you are and what kind of work that you're, that you're doing within the transit space? Because it's very long, very storied um, and you've done a lot of amazing things. Well, thanks, Andrew. <laughs> great. I've not quite had an introduction like that before. That's interesting. And, uh, and Jordan, <laughs> great to meet you too, my friend. Nice to meet you as well. Yeah. So uh, I'm here in Maryland, where I've been most of my career. It's kind of my base. Um, and uh, so, I mean, my background is uh, actually, it's well outlined in my first book, Full Throttle. Uh, but um, basically, you know, my dad was a minister, right? And every, every story starts with your parents. You know, I'm watching Yellowstone now, like everybody else is. My wife and I have been doing, you know, catching up because we just started watching in the last couple of months. We're already into the new season, but you know, it's all based on the dad, right? And, uh, and you know, fathers are very important you know, in our lives and archetypes as well. I'm, I'm actually working on a book. I can't wait to get it done called Without Our Fathers, uh, totally outside the transportation world, but it is about <laughs> The role that fathers play in our lives, especially after they're gone. My dad passed away 10 years ago, and my mom just passed away this year. And it made me reflect on everything again, you know. But so my dad was a minister, and his, you know, sole purpose in life was to help people. He wanted to help them, you know, physically, spiritually, emotionally, all that stuff. So I grew up in a home focused on others, not focused on, you know, self-indulgence and all that kind of stuff. So it was a great, a great way to grow up. And, um, you know, I was from an early age, we were going visiting the senior centers and, and people in nursing homes. And I would go with my mom and dad on their visits to people. And it put in me, you know, they wanted me to kind of go into ministry, you know, what they saw as ministry. And I'd never felt a call to do that. Although I, I, I am a Christian, but I never, I felt like you know, if I was going to be in ministry, it was going to be helping people in another way. And I always felt like it was going to be through government. Uh, from a young age, I felt like government was the way. You know, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> right. But it's true. A government, politics, and all that just interested me, fascinated me from, from uh, actually from the 1976 um, political conventions, which I watched, you know, on TV as we were traveling to Disney World for our family vacation, and it fascinated me. And I got real interested in government and um, decided I wanted to be a lawyer and wanted to go into government in some way. And so I did. 
uh, it, it was a little bit different angle than I thought I would end up going into. Uh, you know, when I was um, just graduating from college, I had already run for county commissioner in my home county uh, at age 21 and run for, at the time I was a Democrat, Democratic Central Committee. Uh, and I won for Central Committee, but lost for a commissioner. And I got real involved in politics, was uh, you know, president of Young Democrats in my county and on the state executive committee and all that jazz. And I was a moderate kind of uh, back then, you know, Al Gore, DNC, uh, or uh, what do they call it back then? Kind of the moderate, you know, Southern Democrat style uh, from the from the Eastern Shore of Maryland. And that's basically still where I am. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm a moderate, uh, but believes in the power of government and uh, transit to do good in people's lives. I've seen it. I've done it. I've been involved in it. So fast forward, you know, many years, I graduated from college with a history degree. I just studied what I loved. Um, I knew, I figured I was smart. I'd get a job. I had all kinds of offers to do all kinds of things when I got out of college. But the one that fascinated me the most was to work in local government. Uh, you know, I'd run for county commissioner. I was uh, super involved. I'd, I'd worked for a radio station for many years already, uh, covering local government for them, uh, going to the meetings, you know, covering what the county commissioners were doing and all that. That's why I ran for county commissioner, you know, in my junior year. So, uh, and I was news director for the radio station at University of Maryland, where I went to college, UMBC. So anyway, I, I had an opportunity. A guy ran for office with me. He ran for one office. I ran for county commissioner. He was head of the office on aging. And we became good friends. His name was Irving Pinder. And when we were done, he said, Paul, I've got two jobs. And now that you've graduated from college, you know, uh, I've got two jobs that are open. I'd love to have you in either one. One of them runs the senior centers. And one of them runs, I got a little nascent transportation department, you know, with six or seven vans. And it's getting big enough where we actually need somebody to be in charge of it. It can't just kind of run itself. And so I've got funding through some state grants to have a transportation coordinator. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know which one I should do. Which one do you think I should do? He said, well, try the transportation one. You know, it's a brand new job. And you can make your mark there, et cetera. So here I am, man, 33 years later. <laughs> so uh, I got super involved there, you know, threw my heart into it because, man, it was an awesome job working for a Department of Aging in a senior center, helping, you know, people, elderly people, people with disabilities. Um, I wrote some transportation, some of the first software that I'm aware of in the country um, while I was there in 1987-88 and had a dispatch. It's funny, I ended up working for a dispatch software company, you know, 30 years later. Right. Uh, we wrote it in, remember the old Access software? I don't know if you oh, guys yeah. Know. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote it in there. I'd learned some about that in college, you know. And uh, anyway, uh, we, the, the commissioners asked me to start our own public transportation system, not just one for, you know, the senior centers, take me to the doctor. So I started County Ride in 1991. Uh, CTAA recognized us as the nation's premier community transportation system after three or four years on the job. It was amazing. I became the state delegate to the Community Transportation Association of America, president of our state transportation association, elected by all my peers who ran all the other counties, and just threw myself into it. Like a ministry, like I said, you know, I was passionate about it. I, I went home. At, that first seven years of my life, Andrew, was probably job-wise, I felt the most satisfied coming home every day. You know, because I was, I did everything, right? I dispatched, I rode the buses, I set up the routes, I, I put up, uh, you know, the bus stop signs myself, decided what the routes were going to be, bought the buses, did the grants, wrote the software, hired one person as dispatcher to help me. And we grew, we doubled in size over the seven years I was there. And, uh, and then that kind of just took me off. Then I got hired by a bunch of private companies to go around the country. Uh, winning bids on contracts to run software, you know, transit systems from the Microsoft Corporation and Redmond, Washington, where I set up their on-campus shuttle system, all the way to the Virgin Islands, where we ran Vitram and 25 states in between. Um, and uh, and then, you know, we got, uh, got into other stuff, and we could talk about that later, but uh, that was kind of the, the start of how I got into it. And I'm passionate about it, because um, I, I still truly believe, I mean, I know government's got a bad rap these days with a lot of people because of uh, some of the things that, you know, all the politicization that's been happening over the last five or 10 years in, in politics where it's become, I mean, I was a county commissioner. I was elected county commissioner in 2014 in my home county. And they want me to run again this time. Like, you know, I'm going to stay out of it this time. It mm. has gotten so uh, toxic. And I really actually feel like I'm making a real difference where I'm at right now, globally, uh, in, in, in such an important way that, uh, you know, shining the light on best practices through all the stuff we're doing uh, that, and helping people actually, you know, going in, having them share with me, here's what I'm planning to do, Paul, what do you think? Uh, you know, I had just a few months ago, one of the leaders of, uh, you know, the system in Sydney, Australia, 
call me and want to talk to me for an hour about how can we better integrate our, our you know, fixed routes and new mobility and all the things we're trying to do. You did that in Baltimore when you were CEO there. How, when you pulled it all together in Baltimore, like how can we do that here in Sydney, Australia? So the ability I have to, and the platform that Trapeze and Vontis and all these companies have given me to connect with all these people. I mean, you know, just last night, I'm talking to a transit leader uh, at 7.30 my time in Malaysia. Uh, talking about what's happening over in that part of the world and how we can make it better. It's just phenomenal. I'm having an awesome time and and hopefully making a difference in the lives of people. Yeah, I, I think you are. And I think that, um, I mean, listening to your story, your, your reach after, again, uh, I, I kind of dove in on you, your reach is very, very far. And you know a lot of people that I, I know as well. And so one of the things listening to kind of where you started and where you've come from, I'm sure that there's some things um, that have stayed the same. Like what are the, what are the same problems that, that communities are facing? But more importantly, um, you just touched on something extremely important that Jordan and I, and, and also a couple of others have tried to do where we're trying to pull these ideas and these, these platforms and these systems together because there is a lot of disparate ideas. There's a lot of disparate solutions um, that a lot of times that are piecemeal. And so I know, especially with the different types of transit and the different types of uh, communities that it can be really hard to kind of bring it together. So is there, it's kind of a two-part question. One, are there still some things 33 plus years later that are still the same that you're still trying to tackle today um, or shedding, shedding light on? And, and two, can you talk about how you are, um, or if there are there some really good examples of some of the problems you've tackled in bringing those solutions together? Is there like a city or a county, or is there a country that's really nailing it right now? Yeah, yeah, that's a good, good question, Andrew. Yeah, what do they say? The more things change, the more they stay the same. So right. look, one of the one of the big <laughs> issues that I tried to tackle that I never was able to solve here in Queen Anne's County was um, so. It's perfect. The, the question you asked is perfect because it talks about something I've already referred to, which is when I worked for that Department of Aging for the first seven years. So in our senior centers, we had two buildings, one in Graysonville, one in Centerville. Uh, there was a health department run adult daycare center, which is for people on the far end of the spectrum, not ready to go into a nursing home, but still needing daycare during the day. And then there was a senior center, which is for more active people, you know, who are going on trips and painting and doing all the crafts. And I play, I play piano, so I'd go in and sing with them and all that kind of stuff. So it's a whole different... A group, but in the same building, it's kind of a continuity of care in the building, but they're run by different departments, right? Health department ran adult daycare, Department of Aging ran this, and the health department's more of a state agency, we're more of a county agency. So what was silly was we each had our own vans. We each would go out and pick up senior citizens, sometimes on the same street, around the same time, across the street from each other, and then come back to the same building. And uh, in my role as, you know, president of, of TAM, the Transportation Association of Maryland, I was working with Florida and other states to see what they were doing. They'd done a really good job in Florida. A lady named Joanne, um, I think her name was Wilkerson, it was 30 years ago, but she set up at the state level a, a coordinating issue, uh, council where they could do medical assistance transportation, which is for low-income people, you know, as well as senior centers, adult daycare, and some public transportation and coordinate it, coordinate the financing, the vehicles, the drivers, and run them all as a group. And uh, we could never do it. The insurance agencies would not allow us to do it, basically was the main reason at the time, as I recall. So fast forward now, 30 years, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm talking to people in, um, let's see, Las Vegas, right? So you just mentioned uh, we did a, we did a, my podcast, one of the cool things we do is we interview CEOs and we do some live events. The podcast is called Transit Unplugged. So we do live CEO roundtables. We just did one at APTA. It was powerful. We did five of the most powerful women in transit. I'd done one like that in Australia recently as a webinar. They'd called me, these, uh, some women friends of mine and said, hey, we'd like to do one, you know, on women only. I said, that's awesome. Uh, and so I said, we should do that here in the U.S. So we had, uh, MJ Maynard was one of the guests on the show. MJ is CEO of Las Vegas RTC. It's called the uh, Transportation Commission of Southern Nevada. Uh, and um, uh, the Regional Transportation Commission of Southern Nevada. And so she, I, on my, uh, uh, we're doing the first TV show. We've also turned the podcast Transit Unplugged into Transit Unplugged TV. And my visit with her a month ago is going to be our first episode. And last night I was doing some editing with our editor on it and listening to her again uh, talk about uh, love all, serve all is their new model. And it is the idea that I was trying to do 30 years ago, 
which is put everything together. She said, you know, we, we put people with disabilities on the shorter buses, so to speak, you know, the short bus. And, uh, and then the uh, people without disabilities, or as my friend Robbie Mackinnon from Kansas City likes to call it, diverse abilities. He's the nation's only blind CEO. Uh, put them all on the same vehicle, let them ride together, and let them uh, have a little bit more control over their ride so they can set it up hmm. on their phone, book their trip, have it come to their house, pick them up. It's what we call microtransit today. 30 years ago, it was just called paratransit, you know, and now it's for everyone. Robbie actually is one that set it up, I think one of the first ones in the country when he did Ride KC Freedom, where he took his transportation, disability transportation, and first brought in uh, veterans and then brought in students and now open to anyone who can call and book a trip and it's microtransit in its best sense. So, but- Oh, oh, sorry. It, real quick. Oh, sorry. Oh. Sorry, Andrew. Go ahead. The, the, so with the app, do they, so does it create a route based off of the demand that people are asking for? So if like these six people, these types of people said this, so say, okay, well, we're going to need this uh, bus. And so, or this vehicle grabs that one. And then that's the one that's on the route for that day. So it may dynamically change every single day. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's no different than, you know, so, I ran Washington, D.C.'s paratransit system for five years. I was the director of operations. It was the largest single paratransit contract in the country. I worked for a company called MV Transportation at the time, based out of Dallas. And um, uh, we had software called Pass Software. It's owned by my company, Trapeze. It's the world's largest, uh, America's largest uh you know, dis reservations, dispatch, and scheduling software. It's used in, you know, I don't know. At one point, we had a 70% market share. It might be a little less now. But most of the large major transit systems still use it. It's, it's got the best algorithms. It's been around for 20 or 30 years. And um, it's the same thing. It's using paratransit software that, you know, my mom would call and have a van come pick her up, you know, and take her to the doctor and then the pharmacy and then home but it would do shared rides. So it's not one person to vehicle at a time. It's kind of like Uber pool. If you want right. to use kind of a right. common nomenclature. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just saying that everybody can ride in it. And the software now is amazing. The algorithms that can figure out what's the best way to, to get the most passengers per hour, which is called productivity and still maintain a reasonable 90, 92% uh, plus percent on-time performance. Those are the two sides of the rope that we constantly pull on, by the way, you know, on-time performance pulls against productivity. The more passengers you stuff into a bus, the, you know, the harder it's going to be to stay on time. So the magic of the algorithms is that it allows you to do that. And so, um, so anyway, yeah, so that's what's, that's what's happening uh, with microtransit across the country. Mm. And it's a big deal. I mean, uh, Los Angeles kind of kicked it off last year when they did the nation's largest microtransit pilot with 200 vehicles. And now I'd say, you know, at least half of the major transit systems in the country uh, there's 195 major transit systems with over 100 buses in North America. And I'd say at least half of them are trying that. I mean, I was just, when you saw me down at APTA, one of the interviews I did was with um, Jane Grog, who runs Sarasota uh, Transportation in Florida. She's actually on the podcast this week, a really good interview, by the way. And she goes in for 10 or 15 minutes and describes how they actually run microtransit in Sarasota and how it's supplanted fixed routes. And so in places like Vegas, They've said it's actually cheaper to run microtransit. People think it's going to be more expensive because the cost per passenger is more, but it actually has turned out it's more expensive to run a 40-foot bus down a route when you don't have enough people to ride it to fill it up. Coming out of COVID, there's a lot of routes where people just aren't riding anymore, but you don't want to leave anybody behind. You don't want to disenfranchise anyone. So if you pull the fixed route off it, you should offer microtransit as a way to make sure that you know Aunt Susie gets to her bridge game on Tuesday nights. She still needs to go. What you got, Jordan? <laughs> well, Paul, you actually just kind of had a little bit of a segue into what I was going to ask you is, you know, for, for a lot of different industries, COVID has either destroyed them or accelerated them. Yeah. Right. And it's had a, a great kind of effect, if you will, depending on the, 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 uh, the group that you're in, what has COVID done to the paratransit industry? Yeah. So, um, and, and the transit industry as a whole too, I'll tell you real quickly. So we had, so I was CEO of the MTA in Baltimore and from 2015 to 2017. And while I was there, uh, there's a group after which you're familiar with. And we, I was in this group, all the CEOs would go to a conference every year and talk about what the hot topic was. The hot topic that year, I think it was 2016 was, where are all the passengers? Because Uber and Lyft had scooped out all of the, what we call choice riders, right? People that could afford to try something else and didn't have to have to ride transit. They were all deciding, hey, I don't want to sit and stand at a bus stop for a half an hour, wait for a bus. I'll just call an Uber. It'll pick me up and take me where I need to go. And so we had lost 
And every major transit system in the country had seen a decline in ridership. And it continued until 2017 or 18, when Tom Lambert, the CEO of Houston, came up with a new model, which was he rebooted his entire bus network overnight after he'd studied where people are going now and changed all the routes overnight because the routes had kind of um, were no longer meeting the need of the passengers. As my friend Lauren Skyver from Sunline Transit likes to say, we were selling what people weren't buying. And so he said, we got to figure out what people are buying. So he shifted it. I went down there in 2016 with eight of my uh, compatriots from MTA. We figured out, they, they gave us a one-day symposium, how to change your bus system overnight to meet where people are going today. Because most of the routes, like in Baltimore, were laid out 50 years ago. And they'd never really been comprehensively adjusted. And all the jobs at that time were in the downtown areas of cities. But obviously, since then, we have beltways and the jobs are dispersed. But the routes had never really changed to take people where the jobs were today. Mm -hmm. So we did that in Baltimore. It's called Baltimore Link. We had two years of study. We built on plus ours. And overnight, we shifted all the routes. And a lot of other people did it, too. And, and then in 2017, we saw that turn. 2008, seven cities had an increase in transit that year. And paratransit goes with it, right? Because it's commensurate paratransit. So mm -hmm. there's an increase there. And then in 2018, we saw a lot of systems across the country see an increase in ridership. And 2019 was the first year in the decade, the last year of the decade, that all of the routes, you know, all the systems, including New York City, which runs 40% of the work in the country, basically, 40% uh, of the trips are provided pre-pandemic in New York, all of them saw an increase. And so we were super excited heading into 2020. And then wow, in March, you know, COVID hit. And all the ridership went down dramatically. The worst was on commuter services, right? It makes sense. People weren't going into the cities mm -hmm. from the suburbs to their jobs because the jobs were not in the downtown anymore. The government put in lockdowns and you weren't allowed to go to your job. Remember? I don't know if people right. remember. It wasn't that long ago, but oh, we weren't no. allowed to go anywhere. And they said only essential workers can ride public transit. But in most cities like Richmond and other cities, on the downtown city buses, they were still like 50% full which shows you that the people that really rely on public transit are the essential workers. It really was, when you say, did, did the pandemic hurt or help? Short-term, it hurt transit. Long-term, I think it was a positive. And the reason why it was a positive for us was that it showed governments and the world and the federal government now that, hey, public transportation is no longer just a local you know, thing. It's a national priority. Because in order to keep our workforce and our economy rolling, the people that work at the water department, the hospital, the pharmacy techs, they all ride public transit. I mean, my transit system in Baltimore, the subway system, you know what the number one stop was? Johns Hopkins University Hospital. Boom, it goes right up into the hospital. And so all the doctors and nurses are riding that subway every day to get to work. And they don't have to park that way. They don't have to find parking. They come right on the subway and it drops them right in their workplace. And so that really was what's behind the three tranches of funds we got from Washington and the latest big increase in our transportation funding came in out of Washington. Most people don't realize that I'll, I'll be done in 30 seconds, but inside this massive new $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill was our five-year reauthorization act. And that five-year reauthorization act bumped up funding, baseline funding for public transit in major cities by over 40%. Uh, and so the federal government has realized that we have to invest in operating dollars, not just in capital, but in operating dollars, because public transit is really part of the infrastructure of the United States. It is a nationalized responsibility for the federal government to fully fund or fund in a, in a better way and not just leave it to the cities, you know, for Memphis to run their own, to fund most of their operating dollars. But we need to dump money into them because that's why you know, a series of 100 cities, 150 cities are the core of our economy. And we need to keep this infrastructure of public transit running. So we need to put an investment in, just like we do in highways at the national level. Now, because the highways were the backbone, the interstate highway system was, you know, the backbone of our interstate commerce. Now there's a realization dawning on Washington. And I'll be in Washington next week, meeting with the head of FTA and the head of this and the head of that, uh, the head of the transportation uh, committees in Washington, talking about the role of public transportation continuing to be the base, one of the base infrastructure components of our economy. So, Paul, you, you made a, a couple of really interesting comments because one, the, the 1.2 trillion uh, infrastructure bill, of course, was highly political. There was a lot of people saying, you know, we can't afford it. We shouldn't do this. It's, you know, we're throwing money, you know, good money after bad. Um, and then you also made a really interesting comment earlier where, you were talking about a couple of different um, systems that have figured it out where they're bringing everything together. Um, but in, in this may be too general of a question, but I'm curious, 
in order to kind of pull it all together and to service the communities, I know that there's a lot of people that think, oh, well, it needs to be privatized in order to, to create competition, to drive costs down, to have innovation and to do these types of things. But then here we are, you're talking about lots of really great examples of people within the government making really great decisions to help serve the communities. And now you're getting a massive influx of capital um, from the federal government to do it. And so I'm sure there's a lot of people that say, well, let's privatize more or it needs more public funding. Do you think in order to serve a community effectively that at a not maybe not even maybe at a federal level, but at a state or community level, must it happen from the government in order to kind of pull all entities together to service a community effectively? Or is there when you were saying earlier that you are moderate, is there some middle ground? Is there something or in order to truly bring it all together, it must be government run? Great question. Um, it's funny. We just did a study. I'm head of a group called the North American Transit Alliance, and we just hired uh, UITP, the International Transportation Union, kind of like the International APTA, to do a study for us. And we asked them to look at privatization around the world. How do they do it in Australia when it comes to public transportation? How do they contract out? What are the models? How do they do it in Europe? And how they do it in North America and compare and contrast that. And actually at APTA, I did a presentation with the senior leader of uh, of uh, UITP and my good friend Doran Barnes, who runs Foothills Transit in in California, where they outsource all of their transportation services. And we talked about it. So here's my opinion, Andrew. I've worked in both the public and private sector, uh, as I mentioned, about half in each, actually, uh, of my career. And um, I've been a county commissioner. I've been a county administrator. I've run, I was CEO of two county governments, running the, the agencies and overseeing transportation. I've been the CEO of one of the top 12 transit systems in America. So I've seen it from all angles, I think, you know, both as a customer, both as somebody who actually directly operates, um, and as a couple steps up on the ladder from that. And I think it's a blend. It's just what you said. It's a, it's a model. So um, APTA, the, the former chairman of APTA, who now is the CEO of Jacksonville Transit, Nat Ford, uh, when he was chair of APTA, he said, you know, we need to change the role of public transportation agencies. I'm, I'm summarizing, or I'm, he didn't say these exact words, but in my opinion, this is what he said. And we need to change it from being just the provider of service to the aggregator of services in a city. And I think that's really happened. So we saw the, uh, like you said, Uber and Lyft came into cities. Then we saw, right, bikes and scooters and you know, companies like Via and other companies come in who are providing transportation one way or the other, private companies and the bigger companies like First Transit, Transdev, right? Um, MV Transportation, Keolis, National Express, RTP Dev, all these companies that already currently contract mostly paratransit services in cities, very specialized uh, services, but also some fixed route. We saw all them being pulled together by transit agencies in a model where they now, uh, like let's use Dallas as an example. So I think Dallas is a good example. They put together an app called a mass app, mobility as a service app. And on one app, you can get 10 services in the city at the time when I was looking at it back with their former CEOs of Palomine. And so that was all their light rail, their bus and all that. But also you could get Uber, Lyft, scooters, bikes, you know, even some cities have water taxis and taxis and all that kind of stuff on one app where you could push a button, it would plan your trip, you could pay for your trip behind the scenes with one button push uh, and um, and then go and just show, you know, your little code on your phone and you could get on the bus, the light rail, the view, whatever. And so that is kind of pulling it all together. That's that viewpoint where there's a role for everyone to play. And when it comes to contracting, my view is it's best done when government agencies, and I've done it myself, I'll use Baltimore as an example, we had a paratransit system there where we had three subcontractors, First Transit, Transdev, and MV Transportation. And we did not dictate to them um, the how, you know, every little uh, dot on the, you know, we want you to do this, that, that. We manage them by outcomes. We want you to have 92% on-time performance. We want you to have 1.4 trips per hour. We want you to have, uh, you know, less than two uh, preventable accidents per 100,000 miles, what they call KPIs, key performance indicators. So we managed by outcomes and let these private contractors use all the skills they have because these, these companies are, you know, super experts. They do this all over the world. And when I left, now, we had a great manager in place, Carl Parr, who was in place there at the time. But when I left all, the MTA, 
we had, I think, the best performing paratransit system in the country. We had 96% on-time performance with 8,000 trips a day, one of the top, you know, 10, I think we were ranked fourth in the country for the number of trips per day, um, fourth or fifth, something like that. And then uh, we had less than one preventable accident per 100,000 miles. We worked as a partner with our vendor. We did not, uh, you know, kind of dictate to them the, like I said, the hows. We dictated to them the what's, this is what we want in the end. And mm -hmm. it worked out awesome. So that, and it's funny because that UITP study that I talked about a minute ago, that was in my mind, the basic uh, lesson from it was that in Europe and in Australia where they really outsource most of what they do with public transportation, their subways, everything, these big, massive federal, you know, international companies like RATP Dev, they run like Paris's system and, and uh, but they work hand in glove. They work as partners uh, to make this happen. So they get the efficiencies that come from having a private partner, but the government still is in charge. And I think that's probably the model that we've seen very successful around the world. Uh, Paul, you had, you, you had kind of been there and, and we're actually instrumental in the change in the industry in the use of technology, right? When you had mentioned you had kind of developed one of the first softwares. Now you're at a, a technology company. Can you talk a little bit about how technology has helped the industry evolve as well as maybe what is still to come, right? Or what is still some of those challenges that, that technology can solve kind of going into the future? Yep, absolutely. Well, there's, uh, there's three hot trends right now. And it's a good way to segue them in. There's in, you know, at the end of 2021, there are three, what I see, three hot global trends in the transit industry. One is microtransit, right? We've already talked about that. And that is personalized transportation, basically. It's like a taxi cab, basically, but it's not one person at a time. It's lots of people in it at a time. And then the second trend is zero emission buses, right? Battery electric and now mm -hmm. hydrogen is coming on strong around the country in the last six months. Hydrogen power vehicles, uh, they even carved out uh, a part of the federal infrastructure bill, what they call the low-no grants, to make sure that not all of it went to battery electric. They want some of it to go in, uh, in this other alternate power source, hydrogen, which is being used in, I just did a couple podcasts on it, actually, um, in all kinds of places across the country and the world. Uh, matter of fact, the guy I was talking to in... Um, over in Asia last night mentioned to me that's really hot right now over there in places like Singapore and Malaysia is hydrogen power vehicles. And then equity and inclusion. I think we have them here. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think we have, I think uh, Orange County uses hydrogen powered buses and things that's like right. that here. I, yeah, I believe, Lawrence Geiber who runs Sunline Transit, which is in Coachella Valley, she actually built a power plant. I got to visit it a couple of years ago, a hydrogen power plant. And she fuels some of her own vehicles with it and sells it onto the market. It's really fascinating. But anyway, equity inclusion is the third big hot trend coming out of kind of all the stuff that happened over the last couple of years. And uh, now in public transportation, I'm, I'm writing the book on that as well about uh, how cities from Melbourne, Australia to Richmond, Virginia, and New Orleans are adding equity inclusion and seeing through the lens of equity inclusion and how public transportation can be a force for good to make sure that we do provide more equity and inclusion in our communities. So very excited about that. So those are the three hot trends. And really, uh, technology can help in all three of those, right? It's a great way to uh, track usage of vehicles, to track where your bus stops are, to track all that stuff. Uh, when it comes to microtransit, you can't do microtransit without GPS on the vehicle, all the technology on the phone, all the back office, like I mentioned, are, you know, the, the powerful softwares in these big cities that take reservations, that do the schedules using powerful algorithms, and then put out, you know, uh, an end of day schedule and to make changes during the middle of the day when people are running late, it adjusts all the routes and the pickups automatically. It's awesome stuff. And technology is continuing to evolve to do things like that. And then when it comes to zero emission buses, uh, you know, the big key right now is to see how fast does it take to charge a vehicle and how long can it travel, right? And in tough conditions where you have to have the heater running all the time. And so, you know, I was just meeting with the guys from Proterra Bus while we were down at APTA and the technology now, uh, how it's gotten, you know, some vehicles can run 300 miles or more on one charge. So that's really what we need, right? The big concern is the bus has to be able to run all day. We can't park it in the middle of the day for two hours to charge. Uh, and so they're coming up with this new technology, which will make that happen. And then, you know, my company's developing software, which will help companies better schedule electric buses so they fit on the right routes. And so we can see dispatch can see the charge on the bus on their monitor and say, you know, if it's not running all day, okay, I need to switch out that bus one hour from now. We've got the algorithm power to do that. So all kinds of how technology is taking us to the next level. It's it's really phenomenal. Uh, so I, I heard actually, somebody, 
I, well, I was going to say, I've heard somebody say that public transportation is probably the place where technology is most advanced. I mean, we haven't even talked about Hyperloop and high-speed rail and all that stuff, but it, the, the advancements in technology there are probably more than any other place other than medicine right now. So it's an awesome time if you like technology to be working in the public transportation industry. Well, and that's well, just real quick, Andrew, oh, I was going to say, you, you kind of just nailed one of the things that, you know, being on the sales side, you know, of, of government for a long time, we've, we've said the last two years focus should be on Department of Education, Health and Human Services, and transportation, right? Like those have been the three, three verticals or subsets within the government agency that have gotten a lot of funding, but also a lot of adapting to, to technology as well, too, over the last 22 months or whatever where we're at. So it's really exciting to hear from somebody like yourself that, yeah, transportation is is one of those hot hot groups to continue working with. Yeah, the, the tech you guys are working on is, is incredible and, and it is so varied. And so when you talk about equity and inclusion, and also you talk about what DART was able to do to kind of bring all those different options together. I mean, more specifically, because I'm a nerd and there's some nerds listening to this podcast. So was DART the one that took their technology resources to pull those 10 together in their mass app, or did they use somebody uh, like Trapeze or in, in the software space where they're saying, hey, we're going to take this and kind of bring all the APIs together and bring all this stuff together. And then we're going to have this option that should you want to have a mass type system for, I, I'm in Tampa, but I'm also from Atlanta. So let's just say Marta, right? Let's say Marta decides, I want to have a system that brings all this together. Would it be up to Marta to do that? Or is there a private company doing something like that to help bring those together? Yeah, good question. It's, it's actually uh, those two models are the two models that cities are looking at across the country. So, and then there's really a third model, right? So, so the whole mass concept started in Helsinki, Finland with the WIM app. Um, and uh, so the third model is, I think, what, what they chose to do in how I would describe it in Dallas, which is a white label product coming in, working with, so it's not driven by somebody like in Denver, where in Denver, uh, Dave Genova there, who was GM at the time said, we're going to put our bus information on Uber's app. So Uber mm. will kind of be the people who mm. run the mass app. Interesting. Uh, uh, that's not my favorite approach personally. Right, right. I prefer the approach where the transit agency, and I think Denver's gone now and is going in that direction. They have their own, they're, they're working on their own app, I believe. In uh, and, and Dallas, they said, we're going to be the aggregator, like I talked about. We're going to pull all this together. We'll be the one to reach out. Now, you know, Uber and Lyft were probably reaching out to them as well. They reached out to me when I was in Baltimore and wanted to work with me there. They, they see the importance and the value of working with public transportation agencies, I believe. Um, as a matter of fact, my company, you know, uh, works a lot with them. And uh, we have software called Trip Broker, which a transit agency can plug into their past software, which will allow them to use Lyft drivers as paratransit drivers, so to speak. You know, they're, they see them on the screen as available options to assign trips to, et cetera. And so pulling all those uh, resources together. It's what we started with, Andrew, what we started talking about when I said that lady called me from Australia and said, how do we integrate that? And it is the same issue we had 30 years ago. Right. And it really, if we pull all those together, the things I talked about, the trends, if we had to do an overarching trend, I would say it's integration. It's right. integrating right. all of the resources in a city um, into one system. Just real briefly, most cities, mine included in Baltimore, they run their transit modes as separate entities. So the subway has its own management structure, its own maintenance team, its own road supervisors. The light rail system has its own people, its own routes. The bus system, what is that about? Uh, <laughs> we need to break those walls down uh, and have them all run as one group. And that's what we did in Baltimore. The, the bus routes were never changed to integrate in with the light rail and the subway and our commuter train system, Mark Service, which went into Washington, D.C. So we changed it so it linked, Baltimore Link, it linked in with all the routes. Uh, so the bus routes would link in with the light rail routes, and it made sense with time transfers. That's a key where technology comes in. You don't want a bus that's running late. You have 50 people on that bus, that just like, you know, airlines, right? You know what happens? You've been left behind, I'm sure, like I have. And it's where they say, oh, yeah, that plane's going to wait for you. And then you get there and the gate is closed and you can't get on it. You're like, crap, now I got to get another flight. The same You're thing like, I'm, I'm Paul Comfort. That should be waiting yeah. for me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, but um, in a city, it happens thousands of times a day where there are the, the meetups, right, where the bus needs to meet up with the light rail, meet up with the subway. And so having the right technology in place 
where it's up on screens in the station, where it's on people's small screens in their hand, where they can see, okay, that train is coming and it's coming. So when you have all that information out available to people, uh, it allows them to make those time transfers and everything can be integrated better. So you don't have to have the bus run everywhere. You can have the bus run some places. Feeder services can come in. Microtransit can largely be a feeder service. Um, I just was talking with a CEO this week about that. About I said, is your microtransit primarily taking people to their individualized locations or is it a feeder service into the fixed route? And they said it's about 50-50. So we're using microtransit to say, we'll come pick you up at your house and we'll drop you off at a hub. And at that hub, you can get on the bus or the light rail or the subway or whatever, and go from where you want to from there. So integrating all that together is really the most efficient way to use the tax dollars that we're given. Hmm. Paul, I'm, I'm curious, you've, you've kind of peppered throughout the conversations a little about what you guys do at Trapeze, right? Or some of the technology you've had out there. Share with, with kind of our audience, who is Trapeze? What do you guys do? What is the technology in which that you guys are, are working on and providing? Give us a little, you know, peek under the hood, if you will, um, as far as, as what you guys are doing. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really honored to work for this company. I tell you, you know, not only are they the biggest transportation technology company in the world, but I believe we have some of the some of the best people and some of the coolest things going on kind of under the hood that I, I can't even talk about all of it today, but the new technology we're developing. So who we are. So Trapeze is a software company that provides software and some hardware to run public transportation. And it's not just in North America, it's a global company. So there are a trapeze, there's a trapeze Australia, there's a trapeze Asia, there's a trapeze UK, there's a trapeze Europe, there's a trapeze Americas. And all of them are rolled up under a company called Modaxo. Uh, there's other companies too, by the way. Trapeze just split in two this year, earlier this year, and uh, spun out a company called Vontis. And Vontis is uh, headquartered in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. We've got a factory where we make stuff. Uh, you know, from, you know, equipment that goes in the buses, computers, and, uh, you know, all kinds of machine, machinery, everything you need to really run a transit system, except for the bus itself, we basically build or, or, uh, or have available to you through our partnerships. So Vontis does ITS, CAD AVL software, they do yard management, where you can track your vehicle in the yard. I don't know if you know, but you know where most accidents happen? <laughs> in the yard. In the yard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> vehicles hit each other. And, and then, you know, there's all kinds of inefficiencies. I mean, I'm really passionate about this one. So let me just talk about it for 30 seconds. Sending your driver out in the morning from dispatch where he gets his manifest to go out and find his vehicle or her vehicle in the dark of night at 5 a.m. And they have to go find it. And they don't, you don't know quite where it was at. That can take 15 to 20 minutes. If you know right where your vehicle's at and you can send them right there, you've just cut 10 minutes off of the morning of, 500 drivers, think about the money that saves, you know, and the time mm -hmm. and efficiency that saves. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the same. So just knowing where your vehicle's in the yard is a phenomenal thing. So anyway, we've got this yard manager software and we've got all the fairing stuff, everything you can think of about fairing. Fairing is changing, right? In my opinion, it's moving away from fair boxes and it's going more toward, you know, on your phone or your credit card, all that. I mean, uh, back in 2016 or 17, I was able to visit Shashi Verma at TFL, who was their CTO and in London, and they were they had just moved to these credit card tap and go credit card systems where you didn't need, you know, like the Oyster card or whatever, you know, to uh, or in our city, we call it the charm card, the multi use top up card you put your value on, but you could just use a credit card. I mean, isn't that where it's probably going? I mean, so you know, you mm -hmm. can use your iPhone just to tap and go and and within six months, 40% of the people riding the, the tube in London or the bus, were all using credit cards, and they've gone away from cash. Guess, guess what? A lot of people in America don't know this. You can't use cash on a bus in London. They don't even accept it anymore. They've realized that, you know, putting cash in that machine, I, uh, just think about this for one second. When, when I was running the transit system in Baltimore, John Duncan was my COO, and he said, Paul, I'm going to do a study. We're going to figure out how much wasted time we get, uh, you know, because we were always have people jammed up at the bus stops. You know, you'd have 13 people to get on a bus and everybody's got to go up and drop their money in. But we were allowing them to do things like purchase a day pass at the fare box. So they'd have to put $4.10 in. The driver would have to type some information in. Then it would pop out a ticket. That took on average 30 seconds for every transaction. If I had six of those take place at a heavy bus stop in downtown Baltimore, six times 30, I mean, 
you've just wasted three minutes. People are standing in line. People are on the bus. No wonder the bus was working at 60% on-time performance. Right. So you can't do all that stuff at the fare box. You got to do that off the bus. Then you have to be able to use both doors. If you open the back door and the front door to load and unload, and there's a little uh, validator in the back of the bus where you tap your card and you don't have to put money in, the speed of the system picks up two or three percentage points a day on that. So all that to say, I'm going to just wrap this up because you asked me to give you the uh, the big picture. So that's the kind of stuff that Vontis does. Then we have another company called TripSpark. TripSpark sells very similar software as Trapeze, but it's mostly for systems with under 100 buses. Remember I mentioned there were 195 systems in North America with over 195 buses, or there's maybe 450 with smaller amounts of buses that work with TripSpark and companies like them. So those are the three big companies that work here in North America, as well as another company called TransTrack and a couple others in South America, uh, Satachi and Impressa One that do all kinds of cool things like facial recognition software and all that. So those are all owned by our company, Trapeze. And then I mentioned all these other Trapeze companies around the world. We all work together. There's a guy named Roger Helmy, who's our global product developer, who's working on the software in Australia and in Europe and America with hundreds and hundreds of developers who are sitting there all day long. I used to be amazed. I'd walk in our Trapeze headquarters in Toronto and outside of Toronto and see like a hundred people. I don't know. There's a lot of people sitting there typing all day with headphones on. I'd go up and say, hey, what are you doing? I'm Paul Comfort. I'm vice president of the company. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm Sudeep and I'm working on an upgrade to FX software for Cleveland, you know, or something like that. And so they're all working all the time. And we have people, all the hundreds of people all over the world working on these software products that then we can all use. That's all rolled up to Medaxo, which is now our kind of global transportation over company that's over it all. And then that's up to a company called Volaris, a guy named Mark Miller. A lot of people in the industry know his name. Brilliant guy was a programmer, started out as a programmer, really invented, took past software from the DOS and brought it over to Windows, uh, the Windows environment as a programmer. And he became the head of Volaris, which is a big company that does a lot more than just transportation, but it's vertical software. And then that's all rolled up to a company called CSI, which is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, and uh, it's a big, you know, global, international, I, I don't know how many software companies they have, but it's everything from agriculture to running golf courses, you know, to uh, the, the vertical software uh, markets in, in every market you can imagine. It's considered one of the best global software companies in the world, CSI. So we have all those resources uh, to draw from. It's phenomenal. And the big thing the company does is not just develop software organically, but also does a lot of M&A, mergers and acquisitions. So they're buying companies Every month, we're buying companies who are vertical software companies that uh, we buy and hold and never sell, never sell. That's one of the value propositions. If you know, you're know you a mom and pop company, you've developed your own software, you've got it to a certain point, you've got 50 customers, but you're 65 years old, you're ready to cash in and retire. You know, Volaris is a perfect place to, to park that because all that sweat equity you put in there will, will never be lost <laughs> because we buy the companies and we never sell them. So I love that. Mark, Mark Miller and, and all these guys up there, they, they came up with this philosophy. And uh, uh, again, it's, it's just an honor to work with them. I, they have all these courses that I go to to see how they run these companies globally. And I've told them, you know, I'm not really interested in running anything anymore. I've already run a lot of stuff. I just want to be an influencer and help spread the good news, the gospel of transit, you know. Uh, but I do love how they run it. And it's very, it's, it's profitable. It's very, um, but it's, um, it is, uh, they dump a lot of money into R&D, which I love, right? We're constantly developing because they know that that's really the future. If you're a technology company, you've got to constantly be researching and developing. You've got all kinds of innovations going on from the safety areas to the areas I talked about with, you know, autonomous vehicles. We haven't even talked about that yet. All the other technology stuff. It's just, it's a fascinating time. I'm so glad I'm alive right now in the world to see all this happen. And really, COVID has shrunk the world in many ways. Uh, and so we're mm -hmm. seeing everyone working together now. You don't have to travel there. You know, I'm talking with people all over the world on Zoom or Teams that I wouldn't have had a chance to really get into. Like, I can even do presentations like in Adelaide, Australia. You know, they said, hey, Paul, could you do a presentation for our staff? Um, now, normally in the old days, I'd have had to fly there, right? Spent three days getting there, you know, and coming back and for, for a two-hour discussion with their staff. Now I can just do it online. And so the ability for us to have influence around the world has grown dramatically due to the new technologies that are now everyone's using. Yeah. Well, I think you bring up a great point because it has really shrunk the world where a lot of people can exchange ideas of things that are happening 
all over the world. And, and you're right, we haven't really touched on some of the really cutting edge things, but and this might be my perception. And, and actually, uh, I was reading uh, your book to my kids last night. Oh, and, um, and so I'll just admit to you, my 11 year old, who, who's really smart, uh, he was very uninterested until I started getting to uh, some of the maglev stuff and some of the yeah. AV stuff and some of the, you know, the GPS. And so when you touched on the, some of the things in here, um, especially the AV things, and then also what was happening in Bogota, um, uh, my perception, and it could be wrong, my perception when you talked about that, as well as the, the payment things, it always seems to me that the States in the U S seems to be a laggard when it comes to some of the very, uh, cutting edge, not only payment, but, uh, but transportation styles. Yeah. Is that true? Or, or if it is ish, wh why is that? Why do we always, why do we, cause I, I went somewhere the other day and I'm like, I, I didn't have any cash and it was just cash box as well. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I, you know, yeah. so, you know, what, is that a symptom of something that is something much larger? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. So you mentioned my book uh, for kids, Public Transportation from the Tom Thumb Railroad to Hyperloop and Beyond. I wrote that for my grandkids because there really wasn't, uh, I couldn't find any books that just talk about, you know, there's zoo books, there's truck books, there's, but, you know, not a picture book for kids that gets them interested in public transportation and tells them kind of the history and where it's going. So, yeah, unfortunately, things like high-speed rail, like how come we can't have high-speed rail here in America? Right. They have it all over China. They have it all over the world. I got to ride the one in China. It was 10 years ago, 12 years ago. I rode from, you know, Shanghai. Uh, phenomenal, 300 miles per hour. They have them all over Japan. Why can't we have them here? Well, I can tell you why, in my opinion. Procurement. Uh, the, the, in, in the past, there was a lot of uh, problems with government buying things, fraud, abuse, all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. So they put in place all these rules and they created brand new departments called procurement departments. And they make sure that all these rules are followed to the letter of the law, which is a good thing in many ways. But what it also does in many ways is it slows down processes and innovations. So if, um, if a transit agency, for instance, wanted to invest in some brand new technology that hadn't even quite been developed, but want to become like a beta test, they can't put 10 or $20,000 into, let's say, with three other transit agencies, put it into a pot to work on a new software product together or a new technology together. Techno the procurement rules won't allow that. You have to have an RFP. You have to go through a process. Then there has to be bids on that. Then they have to be uh, you know, scoured and reviewed and then ranked and scored. And, then, and all that's good in many ways. But I think the price that we pay is the price is innovation. And all that innovation is pushed off to the private sector who has to do all that on our own now. So you know, I talked to CEOs constantly, uh, you know, I've got 100 CEOs on my speed dial, so to speak, from around the world of transit agencies, and we're always talking about what the latest and greatest trends are, and I translate that back to my company, and then we work on that, as do uh, there's many other people in our company do the same thing, but yeah, I think that, uh, and the other thing, to be honest with you, is in countries like China, where they don't have as many environmental regulations, where they can just come through and, you know, Whatever they got to do, they do, and they don't worry about the spotted owl or whatever necessarily. I think that also allows things to go. And there's a price to pay for that, obviously, right, When in the right. environment. So it's that balancing act. But I think those two things combined, procurement and environmental regulations, have largely slowed down our ability to, to do some of those things. It hasn't slowed down all the other stuff, though. There are many other ways where we are advancing and moving ahead. But it does seem like a lot of times in Europe, because there are more transit-centric societies. We're more of a car-centric society here. They put more of their emphasis on coming up with innovations for public transit. And then we sometimes say, oh, that's a good idea. We'll try that over here. Well, well Paul, a couple things I've taken out, out of this conversation today. One, I need to like have a separate conversation with you about time management because like I don't know how you do all those different things, write multiple books, have time for podcasts. Like Probably a separate conversation that I need to have with you. How do you do that all? And but six I'm curious kids and six we, grandkids. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I have, I have half the the kids. So how you're doing all of that? No idea. But I'm curious. You know, as we come up on, on about an hour here, we've been asking and peppering you with a lot of questions. What would you like to say? Like what what haven't we talked about that that we want to make sure we give you the the floor yeah. to to discuss with with our audience? Well, I guess what I want to talk about is really uh, in my last closing comments is about the why. 
Simon Sinek, you know, talks about why are we doing what we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to hone in on our motivations. It's one of the reasons why I love working for Trapeze, because I believe that the hierarchy of the company has the same motivation I do, which is uh, we'll go right back. We'll do a circle, right? Let's do a full circle. We'll go back to the beginning. When I started out as a young man, I was raised in a minister's home, a pastor's home, whose goal was to help people. And I think that um, public transportation, right, we help you know, 50 million people a day, let's say in North America that ride public transportation pre-pandemic. It's a little less than that now, probably about 30 million, but it's coming back up. But the lives of the people that we help uh, and we go back to how I had that inner sense of like satisfaction every day when I'd go home from my first job because I was interacting with the passengers on a daily basis and seeing the impact I had on their lives. And, you know, when we do public transportation right, we make somebody's day. Uh, they're able to get to dialysis, uh, and life-saving technology, right, that they're doing. They're able to get to the doctor, the pharmacy, to visit mom in the hospital or all the, go to work, all the things that are important that this mobility, this public mobility provides. But when we do it wrong and we screw up and we leave somebody on the street corner and they don't get picked up and they're, you know, they just, you know, and all the stupid rules we have in place sometimes that prohibit us from being more efficient. I can tell you a story after story about that, what I saw in some of the cities that I managed, the inefficient government bureaucracies of rules that, that really were not people focused. Um, and uh, so I want to talk about uh, just making sure that we are aligned, that we have internal congruence, that uh, in our heart, and this is when you ask me, Jordan, how do I do everything I do? It's because I'm motivated and my motivation comes from a heart to help people that I know that that's my highest and best good, right? But my <laughs> highest and best good is to help as many people in the world as I possibly can. And I am driven by a passion to do that. I find great satisfaction. I'm at the top of Maslow's hierarchy uh, when I am self-actualized, when I'm helping others. A lot of people haven't realized that. They think that self-actualization is when, hey, I'm sitting down eating pizza, playing video games, you know? No, that's not self-actualization. That's total selfish, um, you know, and, and in the end, you'll feel empty inside and you'll know that that's not fulfilling. What's fulfilling is to be others focused, to focus your life and your purpose on other people and improving their lives. And I can't think of a better way to do that personally than through public transportation and mobility. It's something that touches everyone, every sphere, every race, every, every area of our society. People need to move around and get places. And if we do it right with the right technology and we're doing affordable, you know, what I always call the four pillars, safe, efficient, reliable with world-class customer service. That to me, what, what I've set in place, I even had little challenge coins made up when at the MTA, you know, with that and I'd give to employees that were doing something in those areas, right? Safety, efficiency. Now, safety has a new meaning now. It also means, you know, COVID-free and all that stuff, right? And mm -hmm. thankfully, public transportation has been proven through Imperial College studies, et cetera, one of the safest places, right? Because we're so clean, we clean everything down, we have air circulation, all that stuff in the vehicles. So safety, efficiency, we have to do it efficiently. The routes need to be efficient. We need to do it efficiently with the money. Uh, and then uh, safe, efficient, reliable. People have to know they can count on us. And then the, the customer service part, we can't forget that. We have to have world-class customer service. People have to feel like they're getting going to Disney World when they get on our vehicles, right? Where it's, they have all the information they need is presented in a fun, exciting way. We even talked about gamification, all the things I'm working at in that area where people can have fun on the vehicle, winning, you know, Burger King uh, coupons or whatever as they ride on the vehicle. And so, coming from a heart to help others, using that to produce safe, efficient, reliable, world-class customer service-oriented public mobility, becoming the aggregator of all the mobility, using the best technologies to integrate what we have, will produce a better society, a more happy people, and a better functioning economy. I'm just going to say, amen. And so, <laughs> in what, and the thing is, is if I took those core values that you just said, and I applied it to basically any industry, if they followed it, it would, it would work, right? And so, you know, which is why I think Jordan and I were so excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, and also, we, I have notes here. There's questions I, I, I want to ask you, but I know that we're all, we have a lot of time, uh, you know, we're all cognizant of, of our schedules, uh, and we probably talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, but I, uh, I am so impressed with the work, not only that you personally are doing, but the work that your companies are doing to affect our communities. And so thank you for taking time to speak with us today. Um, and thank you for taking time out of your schedules to speak with our audience as well. Um, so we really appreciate um, the time you've given us and the insight. I, I've learned so, so much um, just, you know, in the short time that we've been together. 
Um, so Paul uh, and Jordan, thank you guys for taking time. Uh, I'll, I'll ask if, if there's one more thing, if there's anything yeah, else you I'm have before we wrap it up. If people want to be in contact with me, follow me on LinkedIn. I put up something almost every day on LinkedIn about public transportation. Look up Paul Comfort. You'll see transportation all over. You know it's the right one. Uh, you can find the podcast anywhere you get podcasts. It's called Transit Unplugged. It's every week. You can go to our website, www.transitunplugged.com. And we now have all kinds of social media, you know, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we're going our brand new Transit Unplugged TV, which you can watch on YouTube. The first episode, the first Sizzler reel is already up. You can go to transitunplugged.com, go to the bottom of the page and click on YouTube and find it. Watch the two-minute Sizzler reel, and then the new the show will be on later on in December. So happy to connect up with anyone, talk with anyone. If you work for a transit agency or a government agency, I don't charge to talk to people. My company uh, allows me to kind of do thought leadership stuff and teach class. I've spoken at 120 conferences in the last year, Andrew, and at events um, and speaking to you know transit agencies to their staff about all kinds of things, safety and efficiency and how to make their transit system run better. Happy to do that for anyone who's listening. Yeah, absolutely. And so for everybody listening or that are that's watching this, all the links are down below. Uh, I personally like paulcomfort.org. Um, and yeah, so that, that, that is, the, yeah, that is the single... Uh, <laughs> Uh, lightning rod right there so thank you again for taking time jordan as always it was good to see you as well and thank you everybody for you taking too. time to listen to another episode of the GovTech advisors podcast see you team